Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, Waterbury, Vermont, Historic Waterbury. My normal get up in the morning, um, two Norwegian elk hounds ready to get outside and uh, get a little energy out, uh, go into the barn, bring water and hay to the sheep. They're always joyous to see in the morning, and they're always happy to see me with a bundle of hay. Um, today's show, we have uh, um, great guests. We will be starting with Mike McCarthy, who's a St. Albans uh, city representative in the legislature, and he retire, he's retiring from the city council. We're, we will be moving on to the Riverside School, uh, talking with the head of school and a parent there about the value of independent schools in Vermont and some of the political challenges that are looming in Montpelier. And we finish uh, the show today at 10 with Jay Cummings, Master Motivator and Amazon Bestseller. And he's going to share with us a program that he is doing that dramatically improves your life. So if you need some improvement in your life, you want to um, short of tune in at uh, 10 o'clock and listen to Jay Cummings. So I want to welcome uh, Representative Mike McCarthy. Uh, welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Brad. Great to be here. Yeah. You, you have so many hats that it's, I've got all these notes in front of me uh, of the, of the different things you do. And, um, I think, and you may have had a uh, legislative breakfast this morning. Is that, uh, right? Or. Yeah, I just stepped out of a really great conversation at the Northwest Career and Technical Center, uh, with students and educators there and talking about the future of career and technical education, everything from uh, training folks up on uh, the future of electric airplanes and uh, to talking about social work and mental health counseling. Uh, really uh, glad to see young students stepping up and talking to legislators that way. Yeah, that's awesome. They're the future. And, you know, notably, you, um, you've you had a lot of uh, public service and you started at a young age and um, you've been uh, on the St. Albans uh, City Council. You've been a rep um, for several terms and um, a lot of other things. What was what's what was early inspiration for you at at a young age to to put your hat in the ring and and you know pursue these things? Well, in my uh, in my early mid twenties, I uh, started Cosmic Bakery and Cafe on Main Street with my mom and my brother. And um, the city of St. Albans was about to go through a huge revitalization, and I didn't know it when we uh, took over the little bagel shop there and and started that family business. And a couple years in, uh, there was this master plan implementation committee that um, the city manager came in and said, "Hey, you've been bugging me about parking issues. Do you want to come and be on this committee?" And uh, that was kind of my entree into uh, into local politics. And, um, you know, I, I just got more and more involved um, and uh, ran for the House and won for the first time in 2012. And so I've been in and out of the legislature and uh, just wrapping up six years on the city council. Um, just love the community and love being a part of these conversations about, you know, how we support working families, how we support economic development. Um, and how we make sure the government really works well for everyone. Um, and so, 
last couple of years as the uh, assistant majority leader um, and being on the leadership team. And uh, just last month was appointed to be the, the chair of the House Government Operations Committee. Um, so House GovOps and Military Affairs is uh, doing all kinds of different work and has a huge jurisdiction, but it all kind of comes down to making sure our government does the best it can for Vermonters. Yeah, and congratulations on uh, the chair. That's a, quite an honor. When I want to return back to, to St. Albans. We've, there's a, you know, the St. Albans government has a mayor, has a city manager, and has a council as well. Uh, so you were on the council for a number of years. What, what were the things that you saw in, in St. Albans? The, how things moved along, how government works, and, and how St. Albans has progressed? Yeah, so when I first got involved in local politics, it was right before we were about to um, get some federal help and some really creative state and local financing to do a series of projects. And uh, a lot of people might be familiar with these things called TIF districts, tax increment financing districts, where uh, we're able to use um, some pretty creative financing to do some long-term investment and um, leverage redevelopment in the downtown. And since then, we've seen over $60 million of private investment happen. So $60 million of increased grandless value uh, in this part of the city. Um, and that's just transformative. It's a huge increase in the amount of, you know, buildings, of jobs. Um, and, you know, it has been um, a, a, a collaborative process, state, local, federal government, all uh, pitching in, uh, local businesses taking a chance on, um, you know, everything from storefronts in the downtown to big manufacturers that are um, helping to to either grow their business here or locate here for the first time. So it's uh, been on the city council about identifying projects uh, and working with the really talented city manager that we have and saying, is the public ready to take this risk of taking on this debt to fund this public investment in order to leverage more private investment? And we've just been able to chip away at that over and over again. Um, and I think now St. Albans City, going from a place where we had you know about half of the storefront empty a little over a decade ago to the place that we are now, even post-COVID, with a really vibrant downtown, neighborhoods with new sidewalks, um, now we have the problem of a lot of people want to live here. We've got to figure out how to build more housing. <laughs> so that's, a, I think, a, a, a short, short-term short problem that's good to have. Uh, it's really challenging, but um, it's one that we're uh, gearing up for, and we're going to be adding hundreds of units of, of new housing across the sort of income spectrum over the next few years. So I'm just so excited and, and proud of what St. Albans has been able to do. Well, good job all around, and uh, St. Albans does look amazing, and it, it has done some niche marketing in terms of restaurants. Um, we have a lot of places to eat, high quality. And I'm reminded, Mike, years ago uh, I worked for the St. Albans Messenger and wrote an editorial um, page column every week. And one of the first columns, this is back in the uh, early 90s, one of the first columns I wrote was about St. Albans being this diamond in the rough. And it seemed that part of it was just a self-esteem problem that, you know, you mentioned sort of taking chances and, and having these investments grow. And uh, so is that what you've seen, that people just are believing and it just spiraled? 
it's uh, it's been this incremental story of building on success. So we, I think that you know the past two mayors and councils, you know, over the course of it's really been 15 or 20 years from the time it was kind of this wave was starting to be planned, applications for some grants for help from the feds, and then the successive iterative process of like, okay, we're going to do this project, ask the public to take a chance on it. That project worked. It added that building that cleaned up that blighted property that added that revenue to the, the tax rolls and then do the next one and then the next one. And some of them have been big chunks. I mean, when we did the parking garage and the state office building and the hotel project, you know, that was a huge, huge risk for the voters of downtown, or just to the voters to support that downtown redevelopment. And they did it. I mean, the, the, the people in the city of St. Albans have been convinced that this was worth doing each successive part of that process. And I'm really thankful to live in a community that did believe in itself. But when I started here as a small business owner back in 2008, with a lot of those storefronts empty and we hadn't redone the downtown yet and we you know, weren't sure whether some big employers were really going to stick around here or, or relocate jobs other places, there was this, this sense of like the bones of the city are great, but what is the future here? It's on a knife's edge. And there were just there was enough people pulling in the same direction to build momentum toward the place we are today. And I really hope that it's a story that we can replicate in other communities that are struggling. And I, I do see other communities around the state that have um, either been doing this along with us uh, or, or kind of a couple or a few years behind us in, in their revitalization and redevelopment. But um, the story of Vermont right now is that it's a place a lot of people want to live. And so with my legislative work now, instead of having the problem of like, oh, where are people going to work and jobs and, and that level of economic development, the real focus and the pain has been on where are the workers going to live? Where, where's the child care that a young family needs so that mom and dad can go to work? Or, um, so that's, uh, it's, it's amazing in the, in the few years that I've been in the legislature how much the conversation has shifted <laughs> um, yeah. about about the decline to, oh, man, things are happening in Vermont. Now we need housing. We need child care. <laughs> well, certainly there's been a, a migration into Franklin County, too, where one of the fastest growing counties were a little bit more, I don't know if affordable is a good word, but um, families can move into Franklin County and, and get a starter home. Although even that has become uh, much more difficult. So we're talking this morning with Representative um, Mike McCarthy. Um, Mike, I want to um, get into the legislative stuff a little bit. But first, two things. One, anything that you're most proud about with your city council work. And then want to talk, you're a musician as well. And we should, we should uh, at least mention that. Yeah, most proud of with the city. I would say uh, when I drive through the downtown and I just see all of the parking spaces filled up, people walking around on a weeknight, that was not how it was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, so I would say it's just the beauty of what our, what our city is and how it's really a bustling, vibrant place. That's the thing I'm most proud of. Um, and then with the music, yeah, I uh, I play at church a couple times a month. I play guitar and sing, and uh, and you'll catch me, you know, once every few weeks playing with my band Cozy. 
uh, and uh, playing funk and soul and, and rock music um, with those guys. And we're one of the few bands up this way that has brass. So uh, we've got really good horn players uh, that kind of make that band a lot of fun. So yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. That's, uh, that's, what, I, that's what I do in my very small amount of free time. <laughs> yeah, is that your uh, therapy couch, um, singing and guitar? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really is. Like, every everybody's got to have something where they can just, like, forget about work, forget about the stress of, of life, and uh, just do something that, that's their passion. And music really is that for me, for sure. Yeah, and, and I'll mention that um, no doubt um, being a small business owner in a small town, cutting your teeth that way give, gives you some empathy for the challenges that small businesses have. So that really was you know, part of your journey that, that I'm sure has paid off. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest uh, concerns that I had was, was just the, the ability, especially, you know, in food service, because, you know, we ran, I ran the cafe for a number of years downtown before we sold it and being able to pay people a decent wage and make sure that they had access to healthcare for a really small, you know, most Vermont businesses have just a handful of employees like we did. Um, for really small businesses like that, uh, it is so so hard to, you know, offer benefits that are, give people the kind of peace of mind that they need. Whether it's health insurance, retirement, those things, it's just almost impossible, especially with thing, um, industries like food service. So uh, that did color my entire thinking about you know, how our economy works and how it supports working people uh, as I moved into doing legislative service. Yeah, it's good to have the boots on the ground um, on. For the, for those things, so you are now um, chairing House Government Ops and Military Affairs. Congratulations on that. Uh, the The legislature really saw a lot of new faces in the House, so you you're getting to be more of a veteran, would you say? Yeah, I'm in my fourth term, and uh, at 38 years old, that makes me an old guy. It's a weird, <laughs> weird thing because we had some folks retire. Um, we had about a third of the members of the House and the Senate um, not seek re-election. So we are, have huge turnover. More than half of the committee chairs turned over. So uh, I came off the leadership team in January and took one of those open chair slots and uh, we really hit the ground running in my committee. It has been um, a lot of learning. I've got three brand-new members on the House GovOps Committee, so that's uh, a quarter of our members are new to the legislature. And um, there's only uh, four of us who've been on the Government Operations Committee in the past, so there's only a third of the committee that has uh, policy experience in this particular area. So uh, a lot of steep learning, but we've, we've really got a great committee, and uh, I'm proud of the work that we've already been doing in these first few weeks of the session. Yeah, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, some of the initiatives that government ops and military affairs that, you, that you're looking at that, that are critical. Yeah, so one of the first things we did was um, extend the authority for all public meetings that happen in Vermont, whether it's your you know town select board, a, a board or a commission, to be able to meet remotely. Um, and they have to warn those meetings in a, in a particular way if they're not going to offer the physical location, you know, city council chamber or some, or, you know, a state office building, et cetera. But the ability to meet remotely, there's still COVID out there. Uh, one of my legislative colleagues just texted me that he's got COVID. So that ability to say, you know, we're going to have this meeting remotely, um, 
is an important one, I think, uh, for now. And we're going to be talking about the future of open meetings, how we maintain access and have the best access to local and state-level democracy in our state. Uh, that's a big part of what we're going to be talking about is that, that ability to, you know, use the technology we have to increase Vermont uh, citizens' ability to participate in local and state government. So that's a big piece. Uh, we started that with Act 1. It was age 42 uh, right off the bat. Um, and now we've been digging into a couple of other areas. We have um, we just passed out H-127, and that's a bill that still has a long way to go through several committees but um, is on its way. Um, and we recognize that a lot of people are betting on sports in Vermont. So uh, the Government Operations Committee has the Department of Liquor and Lottery uh, as one of our jurisdictional areas, and this uh, sports betting study committee met last year. Uh, we authorized that, and they made several recommendations, and one of which was to say that the Department of Liquor and Lottery should really regulate this. We should bring all this illegal sports betting that's happening online into the light, and um, I think that that bill uh, has a good chance of making its way through the House and the Senate this year. I, I know that the department, the administration, Governor Scott's administration supports it. Um, and I had some serious reservations when we started the conversation, but what I really learned is that thousands of Vermonters are already placing these sports bets, um, and they're doing it sometimes on illegal sites. Sometimes they're going just over to the border to one of our neighboring states where it's already legal on some platforms like DraftKings or FanDuel. And, um, you know, the cat's kind of out of the bag uh, on sports betting. And so bringing it into light um, and getting some revenue to support problem gambling were, were key pieces of our proposal there. Yeah, and does that create a uh, a revenue as well if it's kind of regulated a little more? Yeah, it will. I mean, we we there's a tension between how much you regulate it and how much revenue there will be. And I think the sports study committee that met last year did a pretty good job. My vice chair, I want to give credit to him, uh, Representative Matt Byron from Virgins. He's the vice chair of our committee, and he served on the study committee, so he brought a lot of the wealth of policy knowledge and the and the different tension between regulation and the revenue, it's probably um, going to raise. Um, so if we think about the, the entire market will probably be over the course of the first three years, about $10 million in revenue. So when we think about the billions of dollars in the state budget, it, it's not going to be a huge amount of revenue, but it will allow us to invest more. And we were really careful to carve out money uh, to support counseling um, and problem gambling resources. Mm -hmm. And um, we had uh, Dr. Klein from the Department of Mental Health and, and other ex experts um, talk to us about the need to do that as we bring this into the legal sphere, um, the sports wagering. So we have a, um, a caller, Fred from Newberry. I want to bring him on. Um, Fred, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Hey, you know, it's, it's really interesting. The government just doesn't have enough money. Oh, my God. I don't know what we're going to do. Marcus Patrick says, wait until the government runs out of other people's money. Look at what Vermont's going to do. Vermont's now going to get in the gambling business. They're already in the marijuana business. What's next? Prostitution? I don't know. It's crazy. Government is just too expensive, and they can't, and, and the government can't raise enough money. You think they'd figure it out. We're too expensive. People don't have enough money to pay for child care. They don't have enough money to buy a house or rent. It's crazy. Why can't the government wake up? I don't <laughs> it. Do you guys do it? All right. Thank you, Fred. Uh, uh, 
it's hard at both ends, isn't it, uh, Representative? <laughs> yeah, I really think it is. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, with, with the, the sports betting piece, I, I want to really validate what Fred's saying. Um, it's It can be scary out there for Vermonters to say, oh, my gosh, the government's talking about changing things all the time. And really what we do in Montpelier is people from all over the state, we're citizen legislators, we come together and we try to work out some of these thorny issues and say, what what can government do and what can government not do? And when I think about just this sports betting issue as an example, the, the idea isn't to get into the business of sports betting. It's recognizing that a lot of Vermonters are already doing this. Um, it's legal in the states around us, which I think is unfortunate, actually. Um, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have supported this if it weren't kind of already de facto legal um, for so many Vermonters to participate in. And um, just acknowledging the reality of the marketplace and what thousands of Vermonters clearly want is the government kind of saying, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to be in a place where we have some consumer protection and we're doing right by Vermonters so that they're not betting on these illegal offshore sites, giving away their banking information to, you know, bad actors and, and organized crime potentially that are going to um, hurt them, steal their identity, et cetera. So, um, you know, trying to do what government does in terms of protecting citizens is a big part of why we are, you know, to use Fred's term, getting into the business potentially of uh, legalizing and regulating the sports betting. Yeah, um, it's always complicated, and um, we certainly appreciate everything that you do. I know it's it's not an easy job. Um, we are down to uh, less than a minute. Um, is there any sort of last words um, you'd like to um, help us with? Yeah, I mean, I, I really am proud of uh, what we have in the Vermont legislature and uh, what we do to come together uh, to work on behalf of the citizens of Vermont and try to do the best job we can. And we don't always get it right. We come back each year and try to make things a little bit better. And um, and I think that's across parties. I think in Vermont, unlike some of the stuff you see down in Washington, uh, citizen legislators are really in it for the right reasons by and large. And uh, it's a really, it's a privilege to serve St. Albans and, and work on behalf of the people of Vermont. So appreciate you, uh, having me on today, Brad, and talking about a few of the things we're doing. Yeah, thanks, uh, Representative Mike McCarthy. Uh, We'll talk with you again soon. Thanks. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning. It's Brad Furland, your Monday host on Vermont Viewpoint here on WDEV and Waterbury. I was uh, listening to the promo for the Stowe Derby earlier and uh i raced the stow derby um many decades ago and uh it's from the top of mansfield to the village of stow and it from the top it's incredibly fast and i was thinking that if i did the stow derby today i would need a good waxing kit and probably an ambulance uh to complete the uh 
the the run down the mountain. Uh, so I'm um, excited. We're headed up to the Northeast Kingdom now uh, to uh, Lindenville, and I have as my guests the um, the uh, principal, uh, head of school, Roy Starling of Riverside School. And, uh, joining, uh, Roy is a parent of, uh, students at, uh, Riverside, Claudia Lechuga. I want to welcome you both to the show. Good to be here, Brad. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. We want to start out, um, we, you know, we know a lot of, uh, sort of the, schools around um, that we hear a lot about. Um, you're up in the kingdom, uh, a little bit out of the way for for this neck of the woods, uh, Lindenville, yet you've been around for um, decades and, and have a very successful program. I have heard lots of good things about Riverside School. Um, I'll s- start with you, Roy. Can you just tell us a little bit about Riverside and history and, and what you are? Yeah, sure. Um, so Riverside was founded in 1981. Um, a doctor, Tim Thompson, bought a an old farmhouse and started restoring it. And no sooner had he started putting windows in it than two other families came to him <clears throat> and asked if they could start a school in his house. And Tim being Tim, um, he said yes. And so they, the sort of the far end of the house became kind of a homeschool collaborative in 1981. Um, they fourth through eighth graders were sort of all in the same room and they were just doing their best to meet those kids' needs. And it was still a working farm and it was a really sort of collaborative family-based um, hands-on education that tried to be <clears throat> pretty rigorous. Um, and from there, the school grew pretty quickly. Um, sort of the, um, because in part, I think, to the point of our conversation today, some of our neighboring towns didn't have their own schools and Riverside being an approved school at that time was able to take students from smaller towns that didn't have their own schools with state tuition and educate them. And so the school grew pretty quickly to be, uh, I would say, you know, maybe a pillar of the sort of local education community here. And before you knew it, the whole house was taken over. So we still are in an 1865 farmhouse as our main building. We've grown, excuse me, to 120 students now. We go pre-K to eight. Um, and so for 40 years, we've been working really hard to be sort of a community-based, um, casual, uh, small school where kids get a really good education, um, regardless of their sort of particular educational needs. But, you know, we, we try to lift every kid up that comes here, and we think we've done a really good job of it over the last couple of years. Well, um, I can relate to the 1850. 1850- uh, farmhouse because I live in one and it, yeah. it, it's always a challenge to uh, see what what adventure is going to happen each morning when I wake up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yes. And and Riverside. So I assume you're right. Um, I had read a little bit about the school. It so- sounds like you have a a beautiful um, uh, you know river nearby and mountains and 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 sort of the meditative properties that would be good for education? Yeah, we, we are, uh, you know, we have a large, I guess, 15-acre campus with a stream that runs through it. Like I said, it was a working farm at one point. Um, we have really, like I said, casual atmosphere. We have a couple dogs on campus. We have, especially in the early and middle elementary grades, we have a lot of outdoor ed going on. You see kids out in the woods doing a lot of hands-on stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it is, I think, you know, in part because uh, of the school choice model, 
what happens is, you know, any, any kid who lives in the NEK Choice District, which is a district of towns that goes from Kirby and East Haven all the way almost the Canadian border, uh, small towns that don't have their own elementary schools, you know, any kid from those towns that comes to us, you know, they choose us. And so they might often drive by another uh, school on the way here. They might not. But the idea is that because we're community-based and everyone has sort of opted in, we're able to be a lot more relaxed. And so you see kids climbing trees and, you know, preparing their own food and cleaning up after themselves. It, it does. It produces that really nice, I guess, most important word would be safe, you know, emotionally safe atmosphere for kids to take risks and learn. That's really important to us. It's got kind of a sound of music ambiance to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on our best days, yes. <laughs> they're, they're not wearing curtains, but they're joyful. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, Claudia, you're a parent of at least one student at Riverside. Um, can you tell us, you know, what was the attraction and, and, and what are you finding? Um, thanks, Fred. So hearing Roy describe even the history of the school and getting a lot more imagery on on where we are now. I actually have three kids there, and we're fairly recent transplants to to the area. We came for the summer two summers ago, um, you know, mid-pandemic, in the throes of living in New York City and sort of all the limitations and seeing our young children grow up in that um, sort of stressful situation in the city to come to a place like the Northeast Kingdom, really. I mean, if you haven't been, it's really a very magical in the way everyone's describing it, that it really was incredibly transformative. And so we had never, ever conceptualized the thought of, like, living in such a remote area. Um, we we're both, my husband and I, city folks. So being working professionals, it was really important for us to have an area that we could embed immediately into a community or just have um, values that are very community-based and meeting several of the families in the area that are not just part of the Riverside community, but part of the larger community and public schools. It was a really no-brainer for us to really want to be a part of this and really just have that scenery and the the magical landscape. Um, Having three kids there now, two of which had IEP services in New York City, I really can't describe how transformative it's been for them. It's really been each child is at a different level of need, um, one child is somewhat advanced for her age and they're able to meet her and keep her engaged and not only um, keep her engaged, but really like drive a lot of her curiosity and learning. And then my other two children that actually do need services is really gone above and beyond and meeting them where they are and being incredible, incredible collaborative partners on proactively helping us and engaging in what we can do in the home. And also it really feels like a, a great team effort um, to meeting where our kids are and just even also the way Roy is describing having that access to nature, which, you know, is pretty loud around here. It's, uh, I'd like to describe it as a deafening nature and it's really <laughs> amazing and overtaking. Um, having that environment, Roy describes the dogs. I had a child that was incredibly scared of, of dogs when we moved here and seeing him completely transform because he's in an environment where it's, um, reinforced and supportive is incredibly helpful. Um, but just having that access to um, untethered nature and that um, environmental learning has been really key for us on top of the curriculum that I know that they're receiving. So it really has been, I, I can't sort of stress it enough, transformative for us as a family, but also for our children to know that we're in a community that is as caring and supportive 
but also is integrated in the community in other ways as well. Well, I first and foremost want to welcome you to Vermont. Glad you're here. It's uh, Vermont grows richer and richer as people uh, move in and and sh- share and uh, bring their talents. So it's really great. And I have been to the Northeast Kingdom quite a bit. I do um, hike and uh, and that kind of thing. And I I just love. Uh, the Northeast Kingdom is really known for the values of Vermont uh, of old, and uh, it's very, very precious. Uh, so, Roy, back to you. The independent schools tend to be smaller than, you know, some of the public schools and or possibly or or not. Yours, yours is actually with 120 students is, is, is pretty large. Um, but we found over time that the there are some advantages to students who have um you know needs uh teachers seem to know everybody's names not that that doesn't happen in public ed but there's really a sort of a family feel is that is that riverside yeah i mean a hundred percent i mean i think obviously anybody that was here over the last couple of years but you know the kids social emotional well-being through the pandemic far you know outweighed um, academics, though we obviously that's a high priority at this place. And, yeah, I do think, you know, that the scale of the school and, you know, this is what really speaks to me, you know, Vermont with the sort of tradition of town meeting day and these close communities we have. You know, my first time I set foot on this campus, I walked into the assembly, which had all the students in it, and they asked for announcements. And the second grader raised his hands. I tell this story all the time, but the second grader raised his hands and announced to the whole school that he had been on a plane that weekend and everybody clapped and they were really excited. And I think about my own, you know, experience at a bigger school and, you know, big isn't bad, but at a bigger school I was at that I I, I would never have known the eighth graders when I was in second grade and more importantly would not have had the comfort level uh, to sort of just tell them something interesting about me and expect them to be sort of supportive in that. And so there's a lot of educational needs we meet simply through, you know, our mission, you know, active learners and engaged citizens and being community-based and being small. And, you know, this is a school kind of quirky in some ways. The kids call the teachers by the first name. It really has a casual atmosphere, but there's a sort of almost collegiality and relationship between families and teachers and kids that really helps us get to kids um, and get to their learning styles in ways that, that have been challenged for me, challenging in other environments I've been in. Uh, but, you know, just really quickly to the broader point of the sort of school model, that Vermont has long had, you know, if you go back even like 1869, there wasn't a, there wasn't a high school, I don't think, in St. Johnsbury. St. Johnsbury Academy decided it would fill that role. And it's sort of been something that the state has grown up with of this sort of collaborative model. And, you know, different kids have different needs. And, uh, you know, I know that all of the therapeutic schools in Vermont are independent schools. They're schools that meet the needs of kids who might not be served even in public schools. And, you know, not every kid, you know, gets all of their needs met necessarily at every school. And, and it's nice for them to have choices. And so we have, you know, an eighth grader that was actually at the state house with us the other day that was telling people, you know, this is the third school he's been to in his career. And his first school, you know, didn't really work for him, um, but it did work for other students. And his second school was the same way. There were students that were thriving there and he wasn't. And when he found Riverside, it all clicked and it all worked. <clears throat> and that's really what I want for, for the kids of this state and especially Northeast Kingdom here. Yeah. I noted that your school mascot is one of my favorite things in the whole world, a blue heron. And, uh, where I live there, we're in a flyway and they, they are on the shore, um, very quietly, um, 
fishing and they look like a bird that can't fly, but in fact they they do, and maybe that's part of the education process. <laughs> yeah, the, we had uh, you know we do have a stream here, and the kids would be playing soccer in the early '80s, and there was a heron that would sit there fishing, and uh, they decided to use it as the 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 mascot in part because of the patience it showed in, in getting its job done that they thought that was an important thing to grow from. So that's in our motto and our and our mission as well. That that's what we look to that bird for. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, you talked about how, uh, you know, people can find, the students can find, um, their way in the school. And the, you know, you and I, um, talked at least by messaging that, um, we're not really trying to, uh, sort of, it's one or the other, i.e., public ed versus independent schools. Um, they both have, uh, great functions and, and both do, you know, great jobs. But there are, you, you do get kids that, that need something a little different than public ed. Yeah. I mean, we're in an area with, with some phenomenal options for kids, public and independent. I mean, the, the spectrum goes from, for example, the East Burke School, which is a high school that I don't want to misquote the numbers, but I think they probably have 12 kids in their whole school. They're very travel-based and project-based. And, you know, there are kids for whom that is the that is exactly what they need. They really struggled in bigger schools, right? Um, then there's schools like us, you know, where you, obviously, you know, connections with kids are important, academic rigor is important, sort of community is important. And, and there's a whole range of schools. Some of the public schools up here are really good schools. And we don't, you know, we don't like to think that any of us exist to the detriment of the other, but rather that we are all sort of providing a, a palette for, for people to, to choose from here in the kingdom. And it's like, it's this really interesting, um, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect an area so rural and really without a huge economic engine to have these kind of options for kids. And I, I would argue, I think Claudia might be good evidence that, you know, having those options for kids has given the Northeast kingdom, you know, in addition to our outdoors, you know, People move here because they know they can send their kids to St. Johnsbury Academy or Linden Institute or, or the Riverside School or Stevens or other schools, And in addition to all of the public choices they have. And it's a real – it's an attraction. It's what Vermont's been trying to do for generations is to get, you know, to get working families and young kids to move here. We've been throwing money at people for that. And here we have something that's working, especially in the pandemic, you know, even more so, that I would hate to see that sort of diminish in any way. Yeah, and, and let's turn to Claudia on that. Yeah. I have said, at least anecdotally, um, over the years that I felt that, um, families move into communities and one of the first things they ask is to the realtor or whomever, you know, what's the school like or what are the schools like? Was, was mm-hmm. that at the top of the list for you? Yeah, I think beyond having it be very um, emotionally connected to this place when we were here, we also had the luxury of really meeting other families. We were pretty engaged in the, you know, on the the classes that were offered at the at Powers Park that summer, or just engaging with other families. People were incredibly welcoming, and that was at the top of our things of questions that we asked: that what are the schools like? What would we visualize a move here? How could we make that work? And Everybody, you know, across the gamut, as Roy said, the schools that are available here were very highly spoken about. Um, so we felt really at ease having that, that wherever our, wherever we landed, that it would feel like a good fit and we would also make it work. But I think for us, um, Riverside is, just by chance, our local school. 
just happens to be independent. So it was a really big learning curve for us to just even understand what that meant, what school choice meant, and just sort of how, how it's framed normally in the, the national landscape of what that normally means coming from New York City and always feeling like, um, you know, we wanted to advocate for local public schools and make sure they were proper, properly resourced and funded and supported. In theory, that's not, you know, school choice tends to go around that, but I think in context to really understand that and be directly impacted that in this area, understanding what school choice means, it's not just us going to our, our most closest in proximity school, but also knowing that other parents at the school are able to make choices for themselves, being able to enter back into the workforce and make sure that their kids are, you know, going to a school that fits within their schedule and their daily lives that enables them to return to the workforce, specifically women that, um, you know, may have exited the workforce for a number of years. So we have families like that in the community that are making these choices um, based on their, their family preferences. Um, for the child, but also just logistically for the family and it works. And I think maintaining that is incredibly crucial for an area that's as rural as it is in the Northeast Kingdom. It just really would become such a hindrance or just, you know, impossible to navigate. Otherwise, if we weren't giving that opportunity to navigate that and make those decisions for our own families. Well, I'm so happy to hear that it sounds like you were well-received and, and things are going well. It's a great segue, though, to a topic, Roy. There are rumblings in the legislature, both in the House and the Senate, about changing the process of school choice. There's There are two bills that are, you know, really talking about limiting how school choice works. Do uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the, the two bills that have just come out, S-66 is the first of them that's in the Senate, um, and the, the companion bill just came out in the House while we were over there the other day. And I, I would refer to those as like, um, you know, words that come to mind are like draconian, like they just, you know, they, they there is an issue with uh, Carson v. Macon, which is a Supreme Court decision that says that states can't discriminate against religious schools. And there's obviously some trepidation around making sure that the state isn't funding a school that might discriminate in one way or, or another against, you know, a protected class of people, whether it's their orientation or whatever. But I think that this bill, instead of actually addressing that in any meaningful way, shape or form, tries to completely eliminate uh, choice. I think whoever wrote the bill um, did not understand that there were schools other than the four town academies um, that do this. I mean, for example, if you were to go to Sharon, you know, the Sharon Academy is the school for Sharon. They are, uh, you know, six through 12, and that's the school you go to if you live in Sharon. Or North Bennington has a um, an independent elementary school that is like the town academy for that school. There's, there's this huge spectrum of options that are completely overlooked and forgotten in this bill. And I think this bill just lacks nuance. Um, and maybe lacks an understanding of the landscape. So, I, you know, I think that for one thing, the fact that, you know, the rural parts of the states are the ones that by and large have these independent schools doing this wonderful service for rural kids. I, I think that's just going to be really important to remind legislators about that. Like, this is one of the things Vermont has going for it. And I don't think that this bill addresses the issue that, that they meant to address by it. And I think the collateral damage would just, you know, when I just think on a kid by kid basis, but also regionally for the economy, if you were, you know, trying to hire a doctor or someone up here, and you can say to them, you know, here we're in this rural place, but you get to send your kids to Linden Institute or St. Johnsbury Academy, and that, you know, even those four town academies would be greatly affected by this bill. So I, you know, I just think, I just really deeply hope, and I've invited all of the members of the committees of education to come visit us. I mean, our, just a, a quick, and not to be too self-aggrandizing, but our test scores went up 
during the pandemic. We were able through community support and keeping our doors open to have higher test scores last year than we've had since 2015. Something's working here. Independent schools work. We should be studying them and learning from them and supporting them, I think, instead of trying to sweep them away. Yeah. Um, so we have one minute left. Are, are you seeing that that this is rising the emotion of, of the community a little bit, or is it still inside baseball and people don't know much about it? Well, I think the way the bill was written was meant to, um, I don't want to assume nefarious motives, but the way the bill was written was meant to sort of divide us into uh, factions. But I no, I, I, there's some really unanimity in my my community, and I'm hearing from legislators that they are hearing a lot. The people who uh, you know, advocates for school choice are very passionate about what we're talking about here because we, we've seen it and we believe in it. And I think the legislators have heard about it. They know. And, you know, obviously some of them come to this with their own background and their own position. But I think, yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm in our community to sort of fight against this bill. And, um, you know, for, for if, if the problem is discrimination, then there should be a bill that addresses that. And, you know, no place... You know, we are an extremely open and welcoming community, believe me. You know, so if that's the issue, let's fight on that battleground instead of having something that tries to uh, end a model that's worked so long for Vermont and benefits primarily rural communities. Well, I'd love to have you back uh, as this progresses. Um, we're talking with uh, Roy Starling and Claudia Lechuga, um, a parent and uh, the head of school at Riverside. Thank you very much for being my guest this morning. Good morning. It's Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your Monday host, uh, WDEV here in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, my grandparents uh, were here from the late 20s until the 60s. My grandfather was psychiatrist at the state hospital. Uh, they're buried over in a cemetery on Winooski Street here in Waterbury, and lived in uh, Waterbury Center after my grandfather's retirement. So a lot of uh, trips to Waterbury for me as a kid when the state hospital was uh, running, um, you know, with fourteen to 1,600 uh, in-resident uh, patients. And uh, Waterbury has changed, and uh, it's, it's, it's got a, a good vibe and uh, a lot of good restaurants. Uh, we get, uh, breakfast, uh, here after the show and it's just a, a really nice town and it's good to be back for me to Waterbury after traveling here for decades. So my next, um, guest is somebody I've known for years, uh, St. Albans boy, uh, Jay Cummings, uh, in the, in the promo of things, master motivator and Amazon bestseller, which um, I'm envious of. That's quite a title. And, uh, part of, part of the gig, which we'll get into a little bit is, uh, obtaining happiness and positivity, which is something that you're, you're working on. So welcome this morning to the show. Thank you, Brad. A pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you are a um, long-time generational, seventh-generation Vermonter um, and uh, up in, in Franklin County. And uh, so you had a path. What are what were some of the, the motivations along the way, your starts and, and, and where it got you to today? 
Well, it's kind of interesting you brought up some of your history, Brad, of how many uh, your generations down here in Waterbury. Being a seventh generation Vermonter, I thought that was kind of cool. In fact, <clears throat> when I was up at my grandfather's prior to him dying, I saw a picture of him with his hands folded over a tombstone. And we did some research, and we found out that Cummings Number 1 is planted up in the Highgate Cemetery, and he was born before United States was even the United States, 1773. So we all hustled up there, and we all took pictures. So I have uh, on my phone, I've got a picture of Generations 5, 6, 7, and then my daughter is Number 8. So that's kind of cool to have that lineage of uh, living in the area that long. And that was uh, a... Farm background originally, right? Sure. Yeah, my grandparents and great grandparents were all farmers up in Franklin County. I'm not sure what else people did up there back then, then right. farming and construction, but yeah. Right. And an early Cummings was born in Highgate. Um, I would say, well, he was born in southern Vermont in Windsor oh. and then uh, moved up and settled there and, and uh, had his entire career up in Highgate. Yeah, yeah. I think they built bridges, and some of them were stonemasons and things like that. So it's kind of cool. Right. Whatever puts food on the table. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty rugged back then. Absolutely. Um, so you have had businesses in uh, St. Albans over the years, sure. and um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. It was kind of fun. I uh, somehow found myself getting involved in the uh, apparel industry. Uh, which turned into an embroidery screen print promotional products uh, company and, and uh, eventually adopted another brand within that called the Vermont Clothing Company. And what that was was um, three times a year I would design a line of clothing and we'd give them all to the sales reps and all over uh, northeast United States primarily. Uh, we would sell what's called resort gear, you know, anything you'd see at a at a Vermont country store or J.P. or anywhere you'd go on vacation. I had a whole line of uh, those products, and, and uh, that went pretty well for me. And I, I ran that for about 21 years, uh, and then I sold it uh, a few years ago and and found myself at the bank after that. Right. So pretty um, brave. You've seen a lot then um, being in business for yourself and, you know, relying on that uh, is, is something that is not meant for everyone. Um, what you know how how did you get there even having having the courage to to do a business you know that, that that's kind of funny and i and i have to i'll answer that with a a situation that happened you know my mom never took the business seriously she thought i was just a a kid making t-shirts on the side for gas money and rolling quarters to go to the gas station <laughs> and i remember one day i moved five times all within st albans city and the last time i bought a 12,500 square foot building to move the business in on five commercial acres. And one day she showed up at work and she stood at the door and of course all the employees were running around and hundreds of thousand dollars of equipment and we had t-shirt boxes stacked to the ceiling and it was this busy little hub of everybody running around doing everything and she just stood there mesmerized by that and she looked at me and she said, Jay Birdie, how'd you know how to do this? And I said, Ma, I guess I was just too dumb to know I couldn't. Right. <laughs> and, and succeed you did. So that's great. And, Franklin County, great place to live and, and raise children. I know you boat. I see on Facebook uh, that you, you count the days to recreation. <laughs> and you're wiser than most of us men. You you named the boat after somebody special to you. <laughs> the Genevieve after my wife, of course, of 20. I think we're going on 29 years this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you have a full-time job, but you also have um, uh, ventured out into writing 
and uh, to motivational speaking. Yeah, I've uh, somehow I found myself just falling into that. I think it was just a natural passion of myself, and and just I think even at a very young age, I was always of the mindset of let's try this, and why can't we do this, and. Remember being frustrated with my mother at five years old when I'd invent some crazy idea that I wanted to build a, a giant slingshot or a, a you know a, a toy of some sort. And she's like, "No, you can't do that." And I'm like, "Well, why not?" She always had a no that led never even entertained the thought. So I was always that type of you know curious mind. I, I, I wasn't frustrated. I was fascinated. And during school, I learned early on um, that if I didn't understand something in the book, it was just I had to bend my mind around the experts who always figured that out. So I, I kind of just rolled down that road of, of just trying to figure things out and looking for a better way to, to do things or how to get there quicker and uh, stop pushing a chain up a dirt road, as they say in Vermont. Right. Um, so you created something. Um, I motivate um, yeah. is the key word. Um, can, we'll need a little description around that. Sure. We came up with I motivate. Because it's you're it's essentially you're affecting other people's moods, and when I do presentations, I usually start them out with uh, first I start and say you know I want to manage expectations here, and uh, so that's what's going to happen. We're going to change your life forever if that's okay with everybody to kind of tongue and cheek it, and that gets a little bit of a, a chuckle out of the crowd. And then my next uh, part of that is I mention, you know, I ask people, wouldn't it be great if you could just choose your mood? You know, and we all know people that are just always naturally happy and nothing ever bothers them. And then I roll into, but you know what? Of all the things in your life, in fact, your mood is the only thing you control 100%. Then as a banker, I put a little asterisk on that. We may get to that towards the end. (coughs) And then, for example, I give a, a Jim Rohn quote, which I absolutely love. All life form on planet Earth strives for their maximum potential except the human. Mm. And I usually in the presentation, I held back one line and I say it again because I think that's one of the most impactful things I've ever read. And I incorporate into my incorporate it into my presentations. And then I say it again. All life form on planet Earth strives for its maximum potential except the human because we're given the dignity of choice. Mm. And I think we could be making a few better choices out there. Now, a lot of people and motivational speakers, they want to come up and they try to rah-rah you into doing 90 minutes of gym every day and weighing your food and those things. And I'm not saying any of that is bad. That is all effective and that works. And if you're doing it, keep doing it. Maybe do some more. But what I'm trying to do with the I Motivate is to take one small thing. Like I come from a ski racing background. And when we had a kid, when I coached ski racing, if a kid was in their head and really struggling with it, we just said, just focus on that first gate. Make one good turn on that first gate and get the ball rolling. And that's really what this I motivate does because I really go into my next thing. I'm going to do it with you right here, Brad, if, if we have time before a commercial break. We do. And so I usually ask people, I say, I have in my hand 12 of the best answers to the most asked question on planet Earth. And I ask people to guess, and almost nobody guesses it. I gave you a copy of the book digitally the other day, so you might know it. But do you know what the, the most asked question on planet Earth is? No. Most asked question on planet Earth is how are you? And I am sad to say the most asked question on planet Earth is given the least amount of care, consideration, and thought. 
And that's going to change right here, right now with you. I'm the great disruptor. And if your sound guy can cue the lightning bolt right then when I say that, it'll have a lot more impact. <laughs> going to change your life forever right now. Okay, so I'm ready. So I usually ready. ask somebody from the crowd to come on up and, and, uh, and be a volunteer. And some crowds, uh, you can't, you know, they have to pack them down. There's too many at once. And other crowds, i got to pry somebody out of the seat. But I believe you can't achieve true happiness unless you're willing to experience some level of vulnerability. And there is some vulnerability here. But, Brad, I'm going to have you take a seven-day challenge. Okay. All right. And anytime anybody asks you how you are, you're going to have to reply with one of these 12 mood cards. I call them trigger cards. And I'm going to read what they are in no particular order. Wonderful, unbelievable, spectacular, phenomenon, magnificent, incredible, amazing, awesome, exceptional, fantastic, fabulous, and happy. Wow. So those are 12 of the best answers to the most asked question on earth. And I'm going to challenge you for the next week, anytime anybody asks you that. And that's face-to-face, on the phone, email, text, or InstaFace, SnapTweet, Bookgram. However anybody asks you how you are, I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable and pick one of these cards. Now, do you want to pick one face up or let caution to the wind and pick one blind? I'll do caution to the wind. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to uh, grab a card and see what my destiny is here. (laughs) Good morning. It's Brad Furlan, WDEV, Vermont Viewpoint here in Waterbury. It's nice to be here this morning uh, talking with uh, Jay Cummings, uh, author and motivational speaker. Uh, he has cards. He's going to test me. I, I didn't tell him that I'm, I'm the kid who sat in the classroom and as close to the windows as I could and looked out the window most of the class and, and then hoped we wouldn't have quizzes and tests. Um, we're going to have a quiz and test here in a minute um, with the cards. But I want to – before we do that, um, Jay, I, w- I just want to ask you, where did the idea come from? What what inspired this? Yeah, so um, it's pretty funny. I've got a buddy back home, Tom Murphy, and you may have heard of him with his uh, Sweethearts and Heroes anti-bully campaign that he's gone across the country, uh, two million students from Maine to Hawaii and Canada. and. And one day early on before he was doing that, or maybe in the middle of it, I wasn't really aware of it. I went up to chat with him about something. And he, he uh, you know, I'm a six-footer, 200-pounder. I'm not a small guy, but I'm not monstrous, but I'm comfortable. And I see Tom, and I say, hey, Tom, how you doing? He reaches out his hand and shakes my hand. And I feel like I'm shaking hands with a catcher's mitt, right? Because <laughs> Tom's this six-four, solid muscle. And he looks at me with his goofy grin, and he goes, I'm amazing. And it caught me by surprise, and I stepped step back. <laughs> And I was like, man, now, Tom Murphy is a guy who used to fight in a cage, you know, MMA fighting in front of 15,000 people in front of Las Vegas, right? So he's probably not afraid of anything, Hmm. right? So next time I meet him, same thing. Next time I meet him, same thing. And I was like, God, you know, I just feel something about that. I said, there's something there. And I go, I think I want to try that greeting with somebody myself and see how it goes. So I decide that I'm going to go in the coffee shop next door. And when the, the gal asks me how I am, I'm going to say amazing. So I go in there the first day, and I'm ready to go. And she says, Jay, how are you? And I go, good and you. So I instantly reverted back to the thing that I had practiced 500,000 times before, and I fanned on on the pitch. So I go back in my car. I'm not happy, and I'm like, what's going on? I go back a second time. I fan a second time. 
Now I'm even more irritated at myself that I can't say one word to the kindest and sweetest human on the planet. So I go in the third time and I'm ready to go. And just before she comes up to greet me, a total stranger stands next to me. And she says, Jay, how are you? And I look at the stranger and I panic and I say, good and you. And I, I grit my teeth as I'm reluctantly saying. So I now go in my car and I'm berating myself for being such a chicken. And I'm like, what do I have to be afraid of? I've done some scary things in my life or some brave things, if you want to call it. You know, I've, I've ridden bicycle from San Diego to Texas in eight days, you know, 800 miles. Uh, I fly airplanes, right? So you got to talk to air traffic control or something. I'm not afraid of that. I've flown into Boston, which is a big deal, mm. uh, by myself at a little Cessna. Um, been ski racing, right? Been clocked 75 miles an hour going down the side of a hill. But I can't bring myself, Brad to go to the kindest, sweetest, gentlest person that's non-judgmental and just say, I'm doing fantastic. So the fourth day I go in there, and if anybody was videoing me, they probably looked at me like I was crazy because I got my head down. I walk in the door, and I'm going, amazing, 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 amazing. <laughs> so I go up to her, and she goes, hey, Jay, how you doing? And I go, I'm amazing. <laughs> she starts cracking up. I'm cracking up, and you know, my face turns red. And I don't know if she's laughing at what I said or how I said it. But I got my coffee. I went back to my car. My breath was, you know, starting to, heart was calming down. And I did what any athlete does. You know, I took the pen out and I go, I'm going to put that under the wind column. You know, that wasn't a, it wasn't a good looking goal, but it eventually bounced off a couple of people and rolled over. And then every day after that, I went in there and I got a little better and I got a little more comfortable, a little more comfortable. And then the shopkeeper comes up one day and says, what is this with you and this amazing? I said, Karen, you know, if you get to pick your mood, why don't you pick a great one? And she goes, what? Do you have a bunch of cards next to your bed every morning and you pick your mood? And I lied through my teeth and I looked right at her and I said, yes, I do. And no, I didn't. <laughs> and I went home that night and I fabricated that. Because <laughs> I thought it was a great idea, right? <laughs> Literally what these are are trigger cards to just trigger you and remind you to start that first ski race turn or start your day or start your greeting with something a little more than that absolutely mind-numbing good in you and on your way. So it's kind of a disruption to normal human behavior or normal patterns is really what I'm going for. And what that does is it stops people right in their tracks, right? That that clerk at the coffee shop that does a 1,000 transactions a day and everybody's like, oh, good new, good new, I'm complying away. And then you go in there and you go, you know what? I'm amazing. And it stops them in their tracks. And I have fun with this. And I ask people, hey, you want to upgrade that? And I fan out my cards. And I've done this all over the country of where I've gone on vacation or for work or whatever. And I catch people in airports. I catch them at restaurants and whatever. And the relationships that you build as a result of doing this, are absolutely phenomenal. People remember you, and they kind of do that, you know, I want what she's drinking type of attitude. So that's kind of how that came up, how I came up with it. Well, it's uh, life creates life, we've, we find. So what about the days? You, you, you're motivational. Um, you get up. You're tired. Kids are sick. The cat's throwing up on the carpet. Uh, somebody says, hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, how do you answer that? How's the inside versus the outside? Yeah, there's a little bit of Amy Cuddy, the fake it until you make it. But, you know, one of the things I, 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 you know, I don't drink, I don't drug, I don't smoke, I eat right, I exercise, but that's no guarantee I'm going to wake up tomorrow. The other day in the gym, I was in the locker room, I do the 
5 a.m. spin session at Duke's. And a guy looked at me and said, hey, how's it going? I looked at him. I said, man, my day is my day started perfectly. <laughs> and he said, really? What's that? And I said, I got to wake up. So it's really just an awareness and kind of just it, there's a little tongue in cheek here and there's many layers to it. But I also learned that one guy I did that to. He looked at me when I said, my day started perfectly, and he gave me this look like I had gotten some action with the wife the night before. No, 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 this is completely other. So I think you got to read the room and, you know, things not to say when you're naked standing at the locker room. So I've kind of adopted that a little bit. But really that's what it is, Brad. It's just taking a little bit of awareness and trying to be a little more um, thoughtful and mindful of the of the words you chose. Now, I've taken the the, the lifelong uh challenge to try to reply with one of these 12 words or something else much more upbeat and positive no matter what. Uh, one day I had diverticulitis, which if you know what that is, it's pretty painful. Uh, so I ended up, I white knuckled it as long as I could. And this was in the midst of, of me, you know, I'm going to say a, a, a great greeting no matter what. So I go up to the hospital and I'm at the check-in clerk and I am bent over in pain. I think like I'm, I've perfed a, a, uh, my intestines. And uh, the check-in clerk says, how you doing? And I'm just like, you know, my face is – and I look over at my wife like, do I have a pass to not play? I motivate today. And she just kind of looked at me like, you know, answer the question. So I, I kind of grunt and I looked at the clerk and I said, oh, I'm amazing. <laughs> and you do it. But, you know, to your point, there's going to be negative Nellies out there that say, oh, Jay, you, you weren't always in a good mood. And I'm not selling a light switch here. I'm selling an awareness that you, you naturally have undulations, right? And some days when things aren't going well and it seems like the world's ganging up on you, you slide down. And if you had a scale of a 1 to 10 with 1 being really bad and 10 being things can't get any better, and you're going to naturally undulate up and down over time and over years and whatever. But if you normally go down to a 3 when you get into some darker less fun stuff, and then maybe up to a seven when things are going great. If I can help in any way with just a 10% improvement in that by matching your language, and we'll get into a little bit about what it means to say it out loud as, as opposed to just thinking it. If I can say the next time you see yourself headed down to a three and you say, you know, some things are pretty good in my life, and you start looking for better things and not just focusing on the negative, maybe you only go down to a four that time and that undulation. And then when things are rising up to a seven, you have the awareness to look for some other good things that are going on in your life, and maybe you can lean in a little bit and push it up to an eight. So there was a day, uh, uh, Saturday morning, I had to get up early and go do a, a video for I Motivate. And the wife and I, for whatever reason, we weren't clicking that morning, and we got into it. And I got a rule when I'm arguing with somebody is the ping pong ball goes back three times, and if you're not making any progress, drop the shovel and walk away because you're just going to make it worse. And you're no longer arguing about the initial topic. You tend to argue about what, how you're arguing. So nothing goes well there. So I know my wife thought she was right, and I thought I was right, and I wasn't going to budge, but I was nobody was going to white-knuckle their way or push to success through this. So I, I drop the shovel. I go out of my office. I set up my video equipment, and I do this video, and it is horrible. Like, I'm in a terrible mood. Mm -hmm. And I play this thing back, and it made me even more depressed than what I, what I thought I was. But I'm like, I've got to put this thing out here, and I've got to put it out today. I cannot delay this. So I force myself to say happy thoughts and happy words and happy terms, and I go through it five, six, seven times. It gets a little bit better and a little bit better. It's certainly not show-worthy. 
So I go, take a break. I go in the house. Wife says hi. So, okay, it's not a total train wreck here. <laughs> things, things are okay. And we, we kind of were polite to each other. And I'm like, okay, it's not a, it's not, it's not a total. We can salvage this. And, uh, so then I go back out and I do it another eight, ten more times. And by the time I get to track, I don't know, 15 or 20, I've got something show worthy. And I, I release it out on social media and away it goes. But what I learned, Brad, is I took myself from a three and pushed myself back up to a high six in just a couple of hours by forcing myself to say a two-minute video of positivity, you know, 20 times and playing it back. Some of the people I mentor when they get in bad moods, I give them a little speech or have them write something positive. Then I have them record it and then I have them send it to me. Now, normally without that, if I let the things go the way they go, uh, it takes a week to get out of that bad mood. But what I did is I short-circuited those seven days in three hours. So that was six and three-quarters days that were awesome. And I, and I saved myself all that time of negativity. It's real life with uh, Jay Cummings. Uh, I'm sure listeners can uh, relate to the the conversations with their spouse or partners and how that can, uh, you know, drive everything else you do. And uh, to be able to turn it around is is quite a gift, and it's part of what you're uh, um, talking to us about today. We're going to take a short break from Mont Viewpoint. Brad Furl and your Monday host, and we'll be back with Jay Cummings and I Motivate. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning, it's Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV here in Waterbury, Vermont. We're talking with best-selling author uh, Jay Cummings about a... Uh, Obtaining happiness and positivity and I motivate and what, what I'm hearing is, you know, we have choices and, you know, I think about maybe you could, uh, help Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, you know, hey Eeyore, you, we've got a lot of food for you. And he goes, yeah, but it'll probably be spoiled. <laughs> so maybe this is something that you find is, uh, sort of a spontaneous prompt to people to to change how their day is going and how they can change others. It's like like to teach the world to sing. Uh so I motivate um a little let's hear a little bit more about Yeah, so um it's it, it's been a lot of fun uh actually I've I've probably given out 5000 of these cards, Brad. And early on uh, one of the tricks I would do is I would just, uh, you know, put one on somebody's windshield wiper in the parking lot of work or the parking lot of the gym. And I remember one day early on, I was in spin class and, and another person in there, I didn't even know who it was. And she just looked like the weight of the world was on her, her mind and whatever. So I was like, Hey, I'll just go put a, a fun card on her windshield wiper. And, and a couple hours later, she had tracked me down through Facebook and sent me this very long, a very emotional message of saying, how did you know? You know, I felt the entire world was against me. I think she was going through some really hard times, might have been a divorce or relationship issue. And she just felt all alone. And she said, for one brief moment, I got that card on my 
my car and I felt that somebody cared. It was like this virtual hug through the ether that, you know, things might turn around and, and look a little bit better. And and she's really ad- adopted the program quite a bit. And I've got a lot of those scenarios that I've I've used this in the wild. Uh, in the book, I, I talk about another fellow that I was at Duke's and there was a guy in there, Dave, and he's pretty, pretty rough character. And But I liked him. Right. He was very interesting and colorful, and and uh, and I think Dave has done time twice, and not for real serious. I think it was probably a low level beef type of deal from a, a tougher upbringing. So I decided I thought Dave was having a rough day, and I put one of these on his Harley out in the parking lot, mm. went on my way. Nice. Three months later, he comes into my office to talk about something, and I put these cards up on my desk and on my computer and stuff, and he gets halfway through what he was talking to me about, and he stops, and he, he points at the at the computer, and he goes, hey, where'd you get that card? Now, Dave's this burly, rugged, you know, you might cross street if you see him coming the other direction. Um, and I said, well, it's this program I do, blah, 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 and I do that. He goes, you put one of those on my Harley this summer at Duke's. And now I'm thinking, you know. Is he happy or is he going to kill you? <laughs> At that point, I, could, I thought maybe I was going to be the reason he was going to do time the third time. And he goes, I took that card and I brought it home, stuck it on my refrigerator. Every day before I go to work, I look at it. Changed my life forever. <laughs> awesome. So I procrastinated long enough. You've got these cards in front of you. Uh, what are we doing here? All right, Brad, you're going to take the seven-day challenge and improve your life dramatically. Dramatically. Improve well, your life for the next week. There are many who say I need that, so it's fortuitous that you came along. Well, timing is everything. The universe provides. <laughs> it always does. So, you know, you mentioned before about you weren't the type of – you sat by the, the window or in the back because you didn't want to be called on. And, and I, you know, so when I ask for volunteers and, and people sit in their seats and lock up, I'm like, oh, oh folks – the, the, you got two things. It's fight or flight. Freeze isn't one of them. Right. <laughs> the freezing gazelle dies. <laughs> All right, Brad. Now, earlier you said you wanted to throw caution to the wind. You wanted to pick your card at chance. So I've got all of the uh, 12 answers facing me. Yes. So you're going to pick blind. Okay. Which one of these? Now, be careful because we're going to change your life forever. Okay. Well, I'll- I'm sure that they're cheering in the uh, in the surrounding towns. <laughs> All right, Brad. From now on, anytime anybody asks you are, you are going to say, I'm? I am. I choose to feel amazing. So amazing is your word. Amazing. I love next. amazing. Amazing is fantastic. That's how it all started. Um, so, so as I mentioned before, in, in any, any, any medium that anybody uh, communicates with you, whether it's your phone, email, uh, text or whatever, you're going to use the word amazing. And then what I want you to do at the end of seven days, now I'm going to give you the rest of the, the stack. And what, this is a pay it forward type of thing because I'm building an army of positivity. Got it. There's, there's too much negativity in the planet. And I think things are pretty good. So at the end of seven days, I would like you to pay it forward and do to somebody else what I've just done to you and have them pick a mood and send them on their way for a seven day challenge. Will do. So they'll pick one of these and off they go. Yeah. Um, perfect. I can do that. Uh, we talked a little bit off air about, uh, a mutual friend of ours who was my guest last Monday, Dan Marlowe, athletic director at, uh, Bell's Free Academy in St. Albans and, um, does a spin class that you do as well. Uh, and he was talking about walking down the hall in high school and, Greeting people in a positive way and having that change, just that one second of passing, um, 
changing them and it, it's really fits into what what you you've done so has dan been sort of in the periphery part of part of this process or just happens to have the same attitude well, I've given Dan a set of his own cards. In fact, I gave him a, for Christmas, I gave him a desktop version, which are larger cards with a wooden block to hold it with engraved, you know, Bellows Free Academy. Uh, so Dan has been I motivated, uh, but I don't think Dan needed it. And in fact, I don't think, uh, when I hand these out, I don't look for negative people. I look for disciples that are similar or same, uh, to boost everybody up a little bit. Cause the negative people aren't ready for it yet. Right. They've got to watch the rest of us go on our happy and eventually they're, they're, they're going to want to come around. So if we take good and turn it to great and we take great and turn it to phenomenal, uh, we're just creating a lot of stuff. Now, I, I can actually go back and attribute a lot of my upbringing of positivity have been with my relationship with Dan Marlowe as a kid in sixth grade when he got his first athletic director job mm-hmm. was at St. Albans City School mm-hmm. way back then. And Dan just had that twinkle in his eye that you knew, you know, he was a master motivator. You know, the joke up in Franklin County, maybe through the rest of sports of Vermont, is that Dan Marlowe could motivate a rock from one side of the room to the other. Yeah, for sure. He's he's an amazing guy, and so are you. Um, so I motivate. People get nervous when they're um, when you change things, right? Um, so. You get all sorts of reactions of this, mostly positive, I'm guessing. Sure. Um, and so what, what's your best moment and what's your like, whoa? <laughs> uh, you know, I've got too many best moments because life is about building relationships with your fellow human, right? And you never know what's going on in the six inches between somebody else's ears. And you never know what that one brief moment of kindness could do for somebody. Uh, my wife often says, you never know what's going on in the four walls of somebody else's house. And it costs nothing to be positive, right? It does, and, and it really does help out a lot of people, and it just feeds them on its, among itself. Um, there is one story I want to share with you, Brad. Um, I went and I do my presentation. Um, I do it for corporations, for small groups. Uh, I do it in schools for um, – you know, elementary students are a lot of fun because they're not scared yet. They're still in play with their lives. Uh, and I do it with high schoolers that are in leadership programs or entrepreneurial and those types of programs. They seem to be receptive and, and kind of get this. But I went to a, an elementary school and did some presentations there on a Tuesday morning. And a Friday afternoon, the teacher calls me up and she says, you're never going to believe what happened. Billy, not his real name, uh, says he, Billy is a frequent flyer of the quiet corner. And I think the quiet corner is the, the, uh, the, uh, the timeout corner of the year 2000. And when we were kids, it was called something even different. Um, but Billy's a frequent flyer. He needs to go in the quiet corner for three times every day on average and sometimes more. And that's just uh, get yourself together, Billy. And take a breath, calm down, think about things for 20 minutes, and then we'll reintroduce you back into the class. So on Friday, because I lead my sessions with students of telling them this is the one thing that many adults wish they had in training, and we never talked about it, your ability to control your mood, your ability to adapt and identify and understand your mood. So Billy goes up to his teacher and says, Mrs. Teacher, I haven't needed the quiet corner for three days in a row. And she said, I noticed that, Billy. Why do you suppose that is? And Billy sticks his hands in his pockets and he says, you know, Mr. Cummings said I was in charge of my mood and that's on me. 
Mm. So a nine-year-old grasps this concept to dramatically impact his life by controlling his mood at nine. Yeah. That was a beautiful story for me to hear. It is a beautiful story. And I love that you're in the schools and, and doing this because we, you know, we often don't have a guidebook in life. We were sort of expected to know how to, how to journey. And, uh, you know, we look in the sky and like, if there's not any magic words written up there, we just don't know what to do. Yeah. So you're getting in and you change one kid's different or life differently and, uh, and probably many more, I'm sure. Um, we are in, you know, the last couple of years have been, uh, challenging to say the least. And people, COVID has impacted homes, work, school, life. Um, and social media, we were talking on the break, you know, it's communication is texting and, you know, there's no hug in a text off, you know, often. Um, and, and yet you, uh, you found something sort of fortuitously and you realize it was something good to, you know, help all of this. Uh, I motivate. You talk about it dramatically improve your life in just six seconds a day. And Lee could tell when he was promoing the show earlier going, wow, uh, six seconds a day. That sounds, that sounds workable. So how about that? Sure. Uh, and, and that, so the, there's, I'm a math guy and there is math and science behind this. And, and with this whole program, when I wrote the book, I could have loaded it up with a whole bunch of scientific studies and details to make you guys think I'm really smart and scientific. But nobody needs to be convinced the benefits of positivity. I think everybody believes that everybody understands the benefits of positivity in their life. What they do need are little stories and tips and triggers to make them act more positively or remind them, right? I call them trigger cards to, to remind yourself, to put it on your desk, to bring it with you, put it in your car to remind you, right? I, I treat it like when I go to the grocery store. I always remember my recycling bags when I got all my groceries on the belt that I left at home. So you got to put the trigger at the other end of the of the process. So the six seconds a day, I've determined that on average, the average person is asked how they are 24 times a day wow. on average. Yeah. So if I were to say, how are you, Brad, and I start a stopwatch and you say, I'm amazing, and I stop the stopwatch, one quarter of a second has gone by. Right, so 24 quarter seconds in your day or six seconds in your entire day. So that's why I kind of threw that in there as, you know, we're not trying to sell a 90 minute routine every day of, of something that's hard to fit in your busy schedule. We're just trying to have you say one word. Right. That's really what we're going for. You want to ask me how I'm doing? How you doing, Brad? I'm amazing. Perfect. Now, did you see how you just you lit right up, your eyes lit up, and you got really excited about that for a brief second? And that's what happens when you do do this in the wild. You do it with with anybody that you meet. I go. I met with a bunch of realtors uh, last week because they were looking for an edge, right? There is no shortage of realtors in, well, at least where I live and around. But if there's 30 realtors to choose in your town, how do you pick a realtor? How do you get remembered? And if you just have that extra edge, you you can be remembered. In fact, we did a program. Uh, we, we brought this for a test pilot in a restaurant for two months last summer. And we said, if you can choose your mood, you can choose your food. Welcome to our dining hall, right? <laughs> 
there were two staff that really embraced this. And, you know, because eating out can be entertainment. And people love happiness. They love positivity. And the two people that really dialed this in doubled their tips. Wow. More than doubled on some nights, their tips, just by having the fun and telling people, hey, you know, you're just good here. Let's let's boost that up a little bit because you're buying the experience when you go to a restaurant. It's how you feel, right? Because I, when I go coach restaurants and customer service, I'm like, you guys got to remember, I know what the grocery store is and I own an oven, right? So I can cook food. I come here for the rest of it, right? The, the excitement, the, rea- the feeling and the emotion of going out. So that's kind of where that that really lies in the having fun, standing out. And and the dirty little secret of this, Brad, is, and I've done, like I said, I gave out 5,000 of these cards one at a time wherever I've gone. It is all positive. It is altruistic and, and helping other people. But I challenge, the dirty little secret is it is a little selfish because every time I go make somebody else feel a lot better, it makes me feel better too. Right. So, so I am getting something in return. We get when we give it away, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it is a great way to receive and uh, the, the sharing part and, and not feeling alone. Now, there are people who are, are not out and about a lot. Is this the kind of thing that, I mean, I could see if these were waterproof and maybe they are, you know, taping five of them up in the shower and the first thing in the morning is, you know, Seeing that I matter, seeing that, you know, I'm amazing, seeing I'm fabulous, fantastic, exceptional, all those things to kick off my day, right? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of, one great strategy that many people do is they tape one to their, their bathroom mirror. First thing you see when you wake up, last thing you see when you go to bed. And it's just that, you know, I didn't want to get into any science and I, I put very little in the book, but it's NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, right? It's the thoughts to making reality happen for you. And and that's really what it is, is you're rewiring your brain to something more positive, right? And and if you don't believe me, William James, who's the father of psychology, has said the single biggest discovery of my generation is the ability to drastically improve one's life by just changing their attitude. And that's pretty impactful coming from William James. It is. So it's a choice. I mean, and maybe this is the prompt because, you know, once you start the discussion with them, if there's curiosity, you're giving them a little bit more, right? You're saying, Mm -hmm. hey, well, this is what I do and this is how I can help somebody. And then, you know, you've got this, this beautiful fourth grader who he said the frequent flyer of the quiet corner, which isn't a place kids like to be, you know? And then all of a sudden you give a little light and, uh, he figures out that, hey, maybe I don't have to be, you know, sitting in the corner. Maybe I'm going to be the one who's going to motivate somebody else. Absolutely. Um, so the, um, theory or practicality, um, you know, what, what, what do you think about this? So. In theory, we know it works. Everything works about this. And the people that have adopted the strategy have had great success. And I've built up friendships um, with people that I never thought I would build them up with. Uh, but I want to touch something before we run out of time because I don't want to leave this hanging. In the very beginning, I said your attitude is the only thing in your life that you have 100% control on. And if you remember, I put a little asterisk next to that. So I want to I want to address that. So um, there's a, there, there are people that are clinically depressed. Yeah. 
diagnosed by a doctor, admitted to a hospital on heavy-duty prescription drugs. This is not for them. I don't want to make light of their condition because the last thing they want to hear is, hey, all you got to do is say this card. All right. you got to do is pull your bootstraps up. In fact, I tell people with this, with this strategy system that when you encounter the folks that are in that situation, and I've known people that are in it, and it is not fun at all, is to just say it's good to see you today. Mm-hmm. And if anybody has anything better, I'm all ears. But I want it to include and encompass everyone, and we're not discounting, diminishing, or making light of folks in that situation. This is really aimed at the rest of the people that willy-nilly just choose to be negative in their day or or less positive. But let me throw one thing at you, Brad, before before the end of the program. You know, a, a lot of this is, say it's in theory, like you mentioned, and people know the power of positivity and all the benefits of that. So myself, I'm standing here as an example of the benefits of a lifetime of choosing positive. And I'll go back to when I coached ski racing when I was 24. I ended up breaking my my ankle really, really bad. I had some ski boots that weren't stiff enough, and the manufacturer kept sending me parts. So I went off this bump, ski boot folded in half, shin touched my toe, just tore everything out of the, the ankle. I go see orthopedic surgeon. He looks at it and goes, wow. And that's <laughs> not the thing I want to hear from the guy that sees 10 of these a week for the last 20 years. No. So it got really bad. I was on crutches for a year and a half. I contracted this thing called RSD, reflexive sympathetic dystrophy, which is incredibly painful. It's like having diverticulitis of your body. Um, it impacts one of 10,000 injuries, and it's just like the sheet touching your toes, like somebody stabbing you with a spike. And it's very difficult. I have a friend that got it, and she's in a wheelchair today because it can consume your whole body. So... I believe through looking for options and looking for positivity that I was able to burn that. In five years, it basically burned itself up and went away. A few years later, I found myself in the eye doctors. For I had a piece of steel caught in my eye by chance. On a weekend, eye doctor met me there, and he's looking in my eye, and he says, Hey, you got a second? I'm like, it's my eyes. I've got as much time as you need. Did a bunch of tests. Turns out I got glaucoma. Mm. And I'm like, I'm too young. I don't want to go blind. I got a lot of stuff I want to see and travel and do whatever. And he says, after a while, I did some tests. He said, don't worry. It's the good kind. So I got lucky with the RSD. I got lucky with the glaucoma. And then uh, years later, they were doing another test on me and really came down to, we think you got a tumor in your kidney. Mm. So I go in and they scan the kidney and they do that stuff. And now she can't find my right kidney where they think the tumor is. And the doctor had said, um, so I go back and the doctor says, well, you don't have a right kidney. Your left kidney is a super kidney, but it's been worn out 50% by, we got to stop. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. We got to stop. Uh, uh, you got a super kidney, but it's worn out from all the drugs you took for your RSD. Mm. But when they didn't find the tumor in my kidney, which meant I had a tumor in my brain. Mm. And you know where this goes? It's the good kind. They studied it for a couple of years. I'm going to be fine. So four times I'm standing here. It's probably one of the luckiest people you met. Am I that lucky? Was the power of positivity impacting this? I don't know. Well, I think we do know. And uh, great guest this morning, Jake Cummings. I motivate. Um, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, pass it on, folks. Um, and thanks to our listeners. We can't do radio without you. Uh, WDEV, Brad Furlan, your host, Monday. We'll see you next week.